Morning, church. Um, I did have a sermon prepared for today. Um, I've, uh, I'm going to go with a different one. I think the one that I had um, might have been just a bit too deep, a bit too rich. Um, and just looking around, I think you're probably only able to cope with the, this one. It's a little bit more simpler. Um, milk, not solid food. It's a bit harsh, isn't it? That's how Paul starts in chapter 3. He's, he's letting them have it. Like, you know, you're not ready for it. You're not ready for this. Mere infants. But I was just wondering, are we okay? That it, if God wanted to speak to us in that way, are we okay with that? that? That if God were to call us infants. The only reason I say it is because I've really felt that um, in, well, I could, I could say the last few years, but even especially this year, just this real sense of feeling like an infant in Christ and God wants me to grow, to grow up. And, and as we're in a series looking at the Holy Spirit this year, and we've been in a series going called Go With The Spirit and now a series Living In The Spirit, I really am wanting to do that. I'm wanting to live in the Spirit. I'm wanting to grow up. and I'm wondering what ministry would look like if I was living in the Spirit. I'm wondering what the church would look like if we were living in the Spirit. So Paul's looking at this church and what he sees makes him say, you're not ready for solid food, just milk. Mere infants. Sometimes when we look at ourselves and we try to understand ourselves we might have this very linear picture. You know, if you took a snapshot of me now, you go, oh, Jerome, look at him, he's, he's, um, he's a minister preaching, that's nice, that's, you know, very godly. And then take a picture of me uh, 22 years earlier and I'm being driven home by the vice principal uh, from school and she tells me not to bother coming back for the last few weeks of school. Um, I, guess, I suppose it was an unofficial suspension of sorts. So you look at that picture and you look at, the picture now, and you go, oh, isn't that wonderful? There was some sort of conversion experience and transformation, and now Jerome is this. And we have this linear picture. But actually, I think there's always two narratives running alongside each other. And even when we look at each other and, and look at ourselves, we can sometimes see these two narratives running. I mean, I, I need only look, I mean, I don't know what picture you have of me, but I need only look in the mirror and, and go, well, I had an adult tantrum this week. I, I uh, judged that person too harshly. I felt very offended by those words and actions of that person. I was very sensitive. I, I don't know what's going on inside of me that I felt so sensitive. I was very impatient with my children. But that's not all there is to me, yet those things might be happening. And so there's two narratives at work but for the Christian, only one of those narratives is the real one. There are always two narratives running, but one is just a shadow. One's just a shadow. The other one is the real one. So when Paul is speaking, he's speaking quite harshly. His words are sharp, but he is calling them brothers and sisters. In chapter 1, he does say, I thank God for you all. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. These are definitely Christians he's speaking to. And it's not that Paul is asking them to become something. He's asking them to be what they really are, 
He's saying you're acting like mere humans. Be who you are. That's the tone. That's the language. And so when these two narratives are running side by side, remembering one is just a shadow and that when Christ comes in all of his glory and his light is shining, that shadow will be gone. All that will remain is your true self. God's purpose is for a new humanity. And so Paul's talking to this Corinthian church. They're supposed to be a reflection of this new humanity, but there are divisions in the church. One says, I follow Paul. One says, I follow Apollos. And over the last couple of weeks, um, Andrew and Viv have opened that up for us. And it's, it's wrapped around even this idea of wisdom. So the Greek culture of the day is to, is to look wise and to be wise. But this is all actually part of a game, a game that we all play. And we play it because of those two narratives that are running. That shadow of ourselves is always there. Whether we acknowledge it consciously and we can say and see these things happening going, it should not be and ought not to be, but it is, or whether we bottle it down or pretend it's not there, or sometimes we feel overwhelmed by it. And when that happens, when we ignore the shadow or are overwhelmed by it, we start to play the game. And it's the game we all play. But we don't talk about it. It's a bit of a secret. We don't actually name the game. But the game is, um, the game is, I'm better than you. But we don't name it out loud. That would give the game away. So we just play it in different ways. Oh, you went to that college, did you? Oh, okay. Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I looked at the different churches and denominations. Yeah, you... Methodist and Presbyterian, uniting. But I decided to be an Anglican. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you read, you read Timothy Keller, do you? Oh, yep, yep. It's the game where I'm better than you and we all play it in different ways. And it comes out in different forms. Even if you think, oh, I have a low self-esteem, or I don't think much of myself, you know, I know I'm a sinner... Um, that even becomes, I'm better than you. Say, I know I'm a sinner, you don't know. We're all playing the game. And in Corinth, the game is being played. It's around wisdom. And it's um, wisdom by association. So I know Paul, or I know Apollos, and so I'm wise because of who I'm associated with. But even as uh, Paul addresses the issue in a particular sense, if we listen carefully, if we listen carefully to how he addresses it, we'll hear a remedy for this game because we don't really want to play the game. And if we listen carefully to the gospel as it's played out, we'll hear there's a remedy so that we don't have to play that game. And so Paul gives us... um, uh, so, so Paul, in that first part, this life in the spirit is one of a calling to exceptional unity and so division ought not to be the case. When we think of people that look at the church or think of the church, is that what they think? There's exceptional unity there among those people. Is that how the worldwide church is looked upon? That's why I like um, uh, the kingdom, Thy Kingdom Come movement might have started in an, uh, from, from the Anglican Church in the UK, but it's now an ecumenical movement. All churches, all Christians are called to this time of prayer together. 
And when the church is united, when there is that exceptional unity, the presence of God dwells in a particular way. There's a fullness of God that exhibits itself and manifests itself. And so life in the Spirit is one of exceptional unity. And so Paul wants to call them to this and remind them of this. And so as he starts to attend to this, he, he gives them an agricultural analogy and he gives them an engineering uh, analogy just to cover all the bases. Everyone's happy. And um, in the agricultural um, analogy, uh, Paul is planting the seed, Apollos is watering, but it's God who makes things grow. And listen carefully to what he says after that in verse 7. He says, So neither the one who plants, that's Paul, nor the one who waters is anything. They're not, they're not anything. But only God who makes things grow. So remember, they're trying to say, I'm better than you by association. Well, Paul's saying, well, don't associate with me, I'm nothing. Apollos is nothing, I'm nothing. All that matters is God and what he's doing. And so he just says, we're just co-workers. Paul and Apollos, they've worked in Corinth. They're not in competition. They're just co-workers on about God's business together. I remember when Viv um, delivered her first sermon as a student minister and uh, we, we were at a church where people shake hands on their way out and, and um, someone walks past me and goes, oh, Jerome, you've got some competition. Viv can preach. And I was like, yeah. I was thinking to myself, yeah, she can. Praise God but I'm not sure we're in competition. Now, now he, this person meant it in a light way, and I did take it in a light way. They, I think they were complimenting Vivian is what they were doing. But I have to admit, I am a little bit sensitive about that kind of jesting, only because you can be a little bit close to home. I know how easy and, and dangerous it is to compare ourselves to one another, to play that game. And um, certainly in 2 Corinthians, Paul addresses this again. He says, it's not wise when you compare yourselves among yourselves. That's not the standard. And so Paul says, we're just co-workers. We're not in competition here. And then he moves from talking about this agricultural, you know, you are God's field. Then he says, you're God's building. Moves very quickly into an engineering analogy. And he talks about that building having one foundation, and this foundation is a levelling foundation. It's an absolutely levelling foundation. It's one where all are one. Because whatever you build, you're building, this is the starting point. And nothing can stand, nothing you can build can stand unless you're standing on this, on this one foundation, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is the great leveller. This is the great leveller. By grace. Grace. That's how we stand. That's how we're okay. So it becomes silly to be posturing, playing the game of I'm better than you, when we're all in the same boat together. There's one foundation. He does go on to say, yeah, um, people's work will be tested to see what they've built with on top of that foundation and that time will come. But there is this one foundation. 
a unifying foundation. Last week, Vivian talked about having the mind of Christ and she quoted from Philippians where we're, we're to have the mind of Christ to Jesus being in nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage. Instead, he humbled himself taking the form of a servant. Jesus, who is somebody, became nothing so that we could become something. And so we are something now, but we're something on the basis of what Christ has done, who made himself nothing. And we're to have that mind. We're to be filled with the Spirit and have the mind of Christ. And Paul speaks as though though it is the case. You have the mind of Christ. Live up to it. And so, as Paul is talking about this building, he then suddenly jumps in verse 16 and says, still thinking about buildings, don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Can you hear why Paul is speaking so sharply and harshly? Because this community and this community at Corinth is God's temple and God is zealous for this temple. He doesn't want there to be divisions or things that will break it apart. But what an amazing idea. This is the gospel still being played out. There's this, there's Christ is the foundation. God has made us holy, sanctified us, and is building us to be a temple in which he dwells in it with his presence. You might remember from when we first opened up 1 Corinthians, Andrew asked us to think about 1 Corinthians through the lens of a home, that we live in God. He is our home. That one's a little bit easy. I find, you know, the idea of home, what is home? It's safety. It's the place where I belong. But the idea that God makes his home in me or in us, I feel like there's a bit of a leap there or something I need to get my head around. How is it that God would make his home in us? What is this idea of home? Well, when we do enter somebody's home, in a sense, we are sort of entrusting ourselves to the host. The host and their provision and their care. But when God entrusts himself to us, it's, it's, I don't know if that's the right language, but, but he gives himself to us in a vulnerable way. There's a, there's a mutuality, there's a belonging We belong to Christ, but the idea that God belongs to us, is that, can I say that? But that's that's the idea. There's this oneness, there's this real oneness, this real intimacy being spoken of here. And so... Paul comes to this place where we're at home with God and one 
with God and one with another and even ourselves. Because this is why we play the game, even right from the start, from Genesis, right? We talk about when sin entered, Adam and Eve hide. Our relationship with God is broken. We distrust God. We're fearful. But then Adam says, oh, it was this woman who you put here with me. Now there's distrust between humans. There's a brokenness in our relationship with each other. But we sometimes don't often speak about the brokenness within ourselves. There's like a division within ourselves. We, it's like we're not whole. These two narratives are running. But what God has done in making us a home through Christ is that he has sanctified us. I'm forgiven because he was forsaken. I'm accepted He was condemned. I'm alive and well. His spirit lives within me because he died and rose again. That's the words of a song. (laughs) But they're the words of the gospel. Could you imagine that? Here's Here's this idea. There's God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this perfect unity. There's no competition They defer to one another. They seem happy to honour the other, to glorify the other. And yet there's distinctness within it. There's distinctness here. You put two people in a room and and there's immediately, there's a sense of difference. But in God, there is distinctness and unity. I didn't look this up myself, I just remember hearing it, that the idea of the word university comes from that idea that there's unity within diversity. Many different disciplines, but there's this one unifying thing that unifies it all, but in the Christian faith we have the perfect picture of that in the Trinity. So as God dwells within the church, within this temple, it doesn't make sense that there's division. But listen to the story of the gospel, that God would risk a separation within himself in order to reconcile us to him. That might sound like a strange word, that God risks something. Isn't everything pretty safe and certain with God? Well, this is part of the mystery of the incarnation, that Jesus on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God risks a separateness within himself, at least within the humanity of Christ, in order to reconcile us to himself and to one another and even to reconcile us within ourselves, that we might be whole, that I can understand myself, that I I am flawed, I make mistakes, but I know who I am, I'm a child of God. And uh, Paul drives it right at the end to this final, powerful, again, truth within the gospel. You see, when we play this game, we're grasping at things that are less than what God wants to give us always. So I'm better than you, and it's, you know, wiser than you by association. We know there's something wrong relationally. We know that we quarrel, we covet, 
We're jealous, we blame, we boast, we seek favourable associations. We need to be better than, wiser than. So we know there's something wrong. But in the gospel, and we're doing all of this, playing the game, trying to be right, but yet God has already made us right. And here Paul, in these final words, he says, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. See, their behaviour and their actions to try to make themselves right, these are the different ways in our own wisdom we try to be okay. But God's wisdom is so very different. And through the gospel, through the foolishness of the cross, God has done something to make us okay. And so he says, so then, no more boasting about human leaders. Listen carefully what he says. All things are yours. Those are powerful words. When they're trying to make associations, you know, I, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. I belong to this person, I belong to that person. Here the words are, all are yours. All are yours. How is that possible? Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, it sounds like Paul's trying to encompass everything. It's, everything is yours. How can this be? Why? Because you are of Christ. You belong to Christ now. And Christ is of God. All things are God's. And God has given himself freely to you. So now all things are yours. I remember in my preparation for confirmation, um, we used a catechism, a form of teaching of question answer. And uh, one of the questions, I can't remember its exact framing, but it must have been something along the ideas of what, what do you become or what, what happens in baptism? And, and the answer is I become a member of Christ, a member of Christ, a member of the body. I belong to you and you belong to me. Where I become a member of Christ. I become a child of God and I become an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. All that's God becomes mine. Can you remember um, this famous passage of, um, or famous parable, um, probably the most famous parable? What's the, the most famous parable? <laughs> the prodigal son, um, most traditionally known as, but we might prefer to call it the lost sons because we know that both sons have problems. And um, the, the actual parable itself forces you to look at the, the elder son. It ends with him. The focus is there. And this is being told in front of people complaining why Jesus is hanging out with sinners. And do you know the words the father speaks to the older son? So the older son is upset that the father has welcomed back the other son who squandered his inheritance, took his inheritance before the father was dead, comes back, the father throws a party and the elder son says, you've never, never offered me a calf for me and my friends to celebrate. I've always been here. And the father says to him, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
The older brother didn't understand his own position. He didn't understand all was his. So he was trying to be better then. But if he knew everything was his, he wouldn't have to play that game. If he knew what Christ had done for him, he wouldn't have to play that game. If we knew what Christ had done for us, we wouldn't have to play that game. Maintaining the unity doesn't come easy. It's hard work. It's hard work working through the emotions when we feel hurt or offended or when our ideas are different from each other. It's hard work. But learning to apply the depth of the gospel to remember what Christ did for us. He was forsaken so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled and one with God, one with each other, and one with ourselves. May the presence of God fill us richly, that we may be one with God, one with each other, and one with ourselves. Amen.